With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Well, just over three weeks since we last went racing, which quite frankly does feel like a lifetime, it's back. It's race week going to spa. Yeah, and everyone who has suffered and sweltered under these massive drought conditions all summer, don't worry, it's going to be over very soon because we're going to spa. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to send Natalie out there, aren't we? Oh, yes. Thanks, David. I look forward to that. I've only just dried out from last year. (laughs) (laughs) If you're wondering why you're getting the show a day early, it's because from now on, we're going to be releasing F1 Nation on a Monday. And can I just say, this has been the busiest summer break in Formula One that I can remember for a long time. There's been so much going on. But before we get into all that, welcome to F1 Nation with Damon Hill, Natalie Pinkham and me, Tom Clarkson. So Spa is going to look very different this year because since last year, they've spent 80 million euros... First of all, they put a, a new grandstand at Eau Rouge and there are hospitality suites now going all the way down the hill towards Eau Rouge on the left hand side. So they have poured all this money into the track. Uh, it's a sellout again. Well, why wouldn't it be? What is there not to like about Spa? We are going into the next few races, apart from Monza, the next few races, we are going into the heart of the beast, aren't we? Oh, yeah. We're going to the homeland, the, the birthplace of the great Max Verstappen and all those Flemish-speaking people, in, in whether they're Belgian or Dutch, they are going to be there supporting Max. So it's going to be absolutely a Max fest, uh, these next two races. And it's not much like he needs it. He's got an 80-point lead in the championship, which, I mean, it's just hard to see anyone overturning that. Not least Charles Leclerc. What do we think? Well, particularly at Sparpings, let's not forget that Red Bull have phenomenal straight line speed and two of the three sectors at Spa are effectively a straight line. So that thing is going to be like a bullet on those two. Then you've got a slightly twistier middle section where I think actually the Mercedes is going to be very strong. But overall, I think Max Verstappen is going to be super competitive this weekend at Spa. Can he add to the eight race wins he's had already this year? Eight of the 13 races this year, he's already won. And uh, I think he he goes into the Belgian Grand Prix as favourite. And are you the top stat man, Tom? Are you going to be our top stat man? Can you confirm whether never before in the history of Formula One, someone with an 80 point lead at this point has ever uh, lost a world championship? We're not, we're, not looking at fore, we're not looking at a foregone conclusion, are we? Please tell me that. Well, I don't think you need to be a top stat man to say, uh, yeah, that's never happened before. <laughs> I mean, it's a phenomenal lead, isn't it? And, um, you know, if Charles Leclerc does what Sebastian Vettel did back in 2013 and wins every single race after the summer break, he can still win the world championship, even if Max finishes second in every race. But it's going to require that kind of magic from Ferrari and Leclerc to overturn it. Otherwise, um, otherwise, I think Max can actually win the world title as early as the Singapore Grand Prix. Don't forget, there are other things at stake. I mean, Lewis Hamilton is looking, staring down the barrel of a season without having won a Grand Prix. Could he pull something off in Spa? That car has been getting better. And also, we've got the aerodynamic oscillation matrix as well to to explain to everyone, which is this is this new thing which they they brought in. The FIA have said basically we don't want to damage our drivers, and so if we see excessive amounts of porpoising and bouncing like this, uh, we can we can bring in take some steps to 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 change the way the cars are set up, and that could have a bearing, don't you think, Tom? Red Bull and Ferrari probably the most affected. Yep, absolutely right. I think you could see Mercedes pulling themselves further up. And the irony of all this is that where we left off uh, in Hungary a month ago, um, Mercedes was the fastest car. So they've sort of engineered their way out of the problems they were having anyway. Now, I think it seems that Red Bull and Ferrari, as you say, Pinks, are going to be brought back towards them. So I think they're 
they're going to be really competitive this weekend. And Damon, tell me if I'm wrong, but I find when I look at the middle section at Spa and look at those long radius corners, quite a lot of it reminds me of Hungary, that middle section I'm talking about. None of it reminds me of Hungary, Tom. So I would never... But when you look at... I, I never actually say you're wrong, but I think you might be wrong. But when you look at Les Combes, yeah. uh, I, I'm reminded of the far chicane at, at, at Hungary. Then you've got Rivage, that long hairpin reminds me of uh, Turn 1 at Hungary. Then, okay, Puhon is, is easy flat now, I think, or very small lift. And then... Well, there's two, there's two problems. I mean, one is that at Hungary, you basically have a lot of downfalls on the car anyway. So the tight and twisty corners at Hungary, you've got the most downfalls you need, which you can't do that at Spa because of the long straights, as you just mentioned. So cars are running. If they're in a section, which is uh, like the complex down at the bottom of the hill, is it Stavlo and, and, and uh, that bit at the end there or at the top of the hill, um, uh, the, you know, the after the long straight, those tight twisty bits are similar in some ways to Hungary, but you've, you you're running with minimal wing. So, you know, you have to adopt a different, slightly different setup, slightly different driving style to, to cope with those corners. But the, the speed, high speed corners, because these cars generate so much downforce at high speed, you know, the, the lack of wing isn't such a problem. In fact, you, you know, you probably are over, you've got too much downforce for some of those corners. So it's a really lovely track to drive on because you can feel the car accelerate, especially out of Pujon. You come down the hill after the, the corner with no name, which is a tight left-hander, running up on, on a curb, beautiful. And your car just runs because it's going downhill anyway. And you get to Pujon, you turn in, and the, it goes on and on and on this corner. And you feel like you're falling off the edge of the track the whole time. And then as you get to the very end, the car is just spat out uh, a Puhon at, uh, you know, I'm, not sort of, I'm not sure what speed it is we're going, but but that, it's a great little section. It really gives you a thrill to drive on. Uh, you know, and it's got legs, this this circuit. You know, can actually let these cars run for a good distance because, what is it, five-mile track or something like that? Do you know what, TC, I'm, I'm with the champ on this one. He is, after all, a multiple winner at Spa. Well, he is. Yeah, he is. Three times, Damon, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I won... Um, I went in F3 as well there. I loved it. I loved it every time I went there. Well, I won't say, won't say I loved it um, because there were times when I was absolutely terrified. In fact, when my dad went there back in the early days when he didn't have any runoff, he came in after that and sat there and said to the mechanics, um, I don't think I can do F1 because he was so scared. I mean, it really was a frightening circuit. But when it rains, you cannot see a thing. So you're coming up the hill or down the down the straight uh, after Radion. You're just going into a, a white wall. You can't see a mist. You know, you, you know there's someone there, but you, you can't see where they are. And in 98, when I won, I actually came out of the corner at the bottom of the hill and I went into the spray and, and I bounced off the side of a car. And into the wall. Who was that? Coulthard, Coulthard in the wall. I never even knew he was there. And I looked over and there was a car and I suddenly felt this nudge. And there was, I think it was uh, Jano Trulli, uh, who looked a bit surprised. But, you know, I just had no idea there was a car there. So just explain to us, who will never know or understand this feeling, what is it like just to be, have to drive on instinct? Well, it's, it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. I mean, basically every little sensation has to be on full alert. And you really have to just drive because you, you can't tell if you're going to hit a, a deep river or, or a puddle of some sort you know so you're just constantly on red alert even on the straights to hear if the engine right the engine revs are going to go up you know you're going to suddenly aquaplane it means you're you know you're wired you're absolutely wired to, to be able to survive uh, every you know because you don't even get a rest even on the straights because you can spin off on the straights and and anyway a lot of the straights have got slight curves in them as well and rivers coming down them so you know it is it is phenomenal experience i have to say you know, I could only take so much of that. I would, I, pretty soon after the after the '98 race, I retired from Formula One, uh, having had enough of that. <laughs> but uh, you know, it was fun when you were young. Again, you know, it's it's one of those things you feel very proud of if you can if you can master a race in the wet. Of course, Michael Schumacher was the rain master uh, around that circuit, and Max Verstappen is is really very very similar as, as is Lewis in these conditions. They they can cope with anything. It's amazing, isn't it, Spa? Because it feels as if it is a real test of human and machinery alike. It punishes mistakes, but does reward that bit of magic if you can pull it out of somewhere. Um, I'm thinking about George Russell in in Quali last year, 
Now, obviously, we all know what happened with the race. It was a complete washout. But it felt as if he, he got a reward for the bravery that he showed in, in qualifying. Yeah, that was phenomenal, wasn't it? That was one of those standout performances that we, you know, we we mark out particular drivers who've, who've got astonishing skill. And of course, we mustn't forget Lando did something similar in, in Russia as well. But um, so, you know, these drivers, they pop up out of nowhere when the conditions are really tricky, don't they? Oh, and Lando was fastest in Q2, wasn't he, last mm. year? And then that and then, massive then crash. Massive crash at, at, uh, at Eau Rouge, didn't he? But I mean, he was absolutely hooked up. And so look out for him, I think, this weekend as well. If the conditions are iffy, then you look out for the, the, the great drivers, the guys who've got that you know, sparkling extra 2% or 5% or whatever it is they have. It, it comes out in these situations. They just rise to those occasions. Based on that, do you think the drivers love Spa? Or do you think they, they revere it? Do you think that they approach it with some trepidation? Or do you just throw yourself into a challenge like this? I don't know anyone who doesn't like Spa. I can't remember hearing a driver saying, I don't like this place. Um, or Jim Clark. Yeah, but you're going back to when they had no barriers and it just went through the woods and, and you know you just went off into a field. It was, it was like the Isle of Man TT. It was a totally different circuit in those days. You know, it has got a lot safer, thankfully. and But sadly, because of serious accidents, you know, we, we, we've had plenty of, uh, of those round spa um but um you know so it's got a it's got a risk factor and i think that adds the spice um controversially i'm going to say that you know i think that danger is part of the thing that makes drivers it challenges drivers obviously sterling moss was very much uh, uh someone who uh, considered the danger as one of the challenges of the sport um and you know it's a driver's job to overcome fear but we don't want to see people getting hurt. I'm, I'm afraid we've we've had um, too many of those, at least a couple of fatalities at at Spa, and things have to change in order to try and protect the drivers. So, but it doesn't lessen the thrill and the skill needed to perform well on that circuit. And one of the skills I think you need at Spa uh, to perform well is to make it through lap one, because there's always a bit of argy-bargy at La Source, the first corner, isn't there? And you've got to make it clean through there to obviously, you know, that old adage. Is that the shortest run to the first corner apart from Monaco? Yeah, and uh, so they're all it, yeah. tripping over each other. And of course, you're then desperate to get a clean run out of there because of the, the long straight that follows up to Lacombe. And also down, down through the first part of Radion, when they come through, remember that pass with, with Weber and Alonso? That, that was just absolutely thrilling and terrifying at the same time. Balletic, yeah. Yeah, two guys totally respecting each other there through that corner um, and they managed to pull off a, a you know, great display of driving and of course, you know, not forgetting uh, you know, Mika Hakkinen and Michael Schumacher going either side of uh, and, and Mika Hakkinen overtaking Michael by going the other side of uh, the bat marker who I've name I forget. Ricardo Zonta. Ricardo Zonta. Yeah. So hi, hi Ricardo if you're listening. Mm. <laughs> Damon, another challenge it feels, and, and I think this is something about the aesthetic of Spa, these rolling Ardennes hills, and you know you, you arrive to this sort of sea of greenness, and it's beautiful, but the elevation change, 100 metres between the highest and lowest points, how, how difficult is that to manage? It's not, it's not difficult. The downhill stuff is more difficult than uphill. When you've got a corner that's actually dropping away like Pujon on the entry, you just get a feeling like you're going to fall off the edge of it. So it's kind of a mental trick. You have to convince yourself that when you start to turn in, the car is not going to just go flying off into the uh, into the uh, gravel trap there. Um, but other than that, I love undulations. The undul it's a roller coaster. It's the, that's the, one of the thrilling things about it. And actually, when you get up to the top at Virage and you turn around to that, as I said, the corner with no name just before Pujon, you can see all the way up to the paddock. So you can see how far you've travelled. You can see right the way across to the other side of the valley. It just adds to the thrill of the whole experience of, of racing at Spa. It's a circuit which actually covers some space, some ground, you know, and it's, as you said, it's through the forest as well. So you get a feeling like you've been let loose to really see what a Formula One car can do. And TC, they talk about it being a track that rewards efficiency. Can you just explain what that means? Because you alluded to the fact that there are these contrasting sections of the track, one that rewards straight line speed and the other that it would favour uh, those that are set up well for twisty, uh, tight corners and long radius corners as well. So how on earth do you strike the perfect balance? 
really hard, isn't it, Pinks? And, and actually qualifying is really hard on many levels at Spa um, because the lap is so long. You're looking at one minute 45. You get fewer goes at it. So you get fewer laps. So you have to be on it from lap one. And if you suddenly want to, to make a change by the time you've come back into the pits, made a setup change and got back out, you're probably running out of time. So you have to plan the session very carefully. And then as you say, do you go for higher downforce, which would slow you down along the straights in sector one and sector three, but make you incredibly fast uh, through sector two, through the twists of sector two? Or do you go for greater straight line speed? And uh, but that, of course, will compromise you in sector two. And of course, over a race distance, that will have an effect on tyre wear. Now, that is the challenge of Spa. And you see every year teams approaching it differently. You've got DRS zones, of course, one uh, on the start finish straight and then one uh, going up to Lake Combe at the end of sector one. I don't know, Damon, what, what did you used to do? I, I think you normally see teams go more towards a race, being fast in the race, fast in a straight line, because uh, that you know makes overtaking easier. So I think that's what more people go towards. But it is a compromise, isn't it? <laughs> One of the problems with it is you wake up on race morning and it's teeming with rain and you've set up your car to run with low downforce. Uh, now, you, in those days, you could change it when I was racing, but you can't now. So you're stuck with what you've got. So you've got to, you cannot set up a car to be, um, you know, unless you're absolutely dead certain it's going to be wet and 100% wet for the whole race. You can't really set it up for a race, you know, so... Um, they will run with minimal wing. You would, you're absolutely right. The thing to do is, or the, the goal is to make the aero efficiency on the car as good as possible. So that includes things like, you know, the, the level of the rake. And they've got this new rule that they've brought in now. And as I understand it, to stop flexing of the floor at the back. So we might see some cars having to change the way they set up the car. So this will be a real test for some cars that may have contravened that regulation. It's been picked up by the FIA and it's, it's to stop the, the rear of the floor flexing. That might change the way they set up their car. But if you get your the base of the car producing the most efficient downforce, then you can peel off some wing off the off the rear, off the flap, which is w what you really want to do. And that keeps a, a good base for you to uh, to handle the car through the fast corners, but uh, slippery down the straight. So yeah, definitely move towards as little downforce as possible. The cars at the back, unfortunately, because they don't have as good aero efficiency, if they run less wing, they basically just go slower. So you might find them sometimes opting to have more wing on just so that they get a quicker lap time and they are not going to be passing people on the straight. They're at the back anyway. Quicker lap time and then praying for rain in the race. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> to weave your two points together, when you think about how big this track is, there will be parts where it's raining and others where it's not. Yeah, that's true. Just to make it even more challenging. Completely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it covers a quite a, quite a well two valleys. It's, it's basically in the in a valley, isn't it? But it goes into another valley, I think. So, yeah, it can get uh, areas where it's wet, and we've had that before. So, plenty of excitement, and it's great on on TV as well. That's the other thing is that one of the one of the things with our sport is to get the impression of speed. You know, you, you sometimes you miss it with it, with some of the circuits we go to, but with Spa, you can see. Uh, you know, as they go up the Kemmel Strait and the helicopters trying to chase them up the up the hill, then um, you you get some idea of how fast these cars are. And then, if you factor into all of this, the fact that it is the first of a triple header, that is another headache, challenge, whatever you want to call it for the teams in terms of. Um, well, I know we've had a, a lovely little break now, but the break has only been as long as the triple header will be. So, really, in the whole scheme of things, it's not that much downtime, is it? Yeah, and if Charles Leclerc is going to do anything about this World Championship fight with Max, he has to win these three races. He has to leave Monza in three weeks' time with three more wins under his belt, 75 points, hopefully a few, three more for fastest lap as well. And if he doesn't, and Max is just being Mr. Consistent, that's all he needs to be now, Max. It's Mr. Consistent, really. And um, but So it's in a way, for Charles, it's, it's an easy... It's an easy objective. I have to win these races and be completely uncompromising in his approach. But he has to do that. So three Charles Leclerc wins. And I think for that reason, uh, we might see Carlos Sainz playing second fiddle at Ferrari as well. If, if Carlos is in a position to win and, or, or can move over and help Charles, I think he will. Team player is Carlos. I mean, the other thing is this, this triple header... After the debacle of, of Hungary for Ferrari, that's in the back of their mind as well. 
they've got to be on a good run going into Monza. You don't want to turn up at Monza having having had your, your pants kicked for the last four races. Um, so um, last three races, if you, you know, by the time you get to Monza, you want Ferrari will be determined to come out of the blocks after the summer break, having put to bed all the criticisms that they've had. So I don't know where they've got that. They will have been done a lot of talking over that. Then, they, although they have a summer break and a factory shut down for two weeks, it doesn't stop them uh, using the telephone uh, or the internet, or whatever they <laughs> communicate on Zoom calls. There'll be some interesting meetings going on, I should think, over that break. When you've had a bad result, you want to get back racing as soon as possible. But it does feel as if Ferrari needed to sort of just take time to reflect and calm down and talk as you say, Damon, with one another about how they can approach the second half of the season. Do you think any changes will be made? I mean, Mattia Bonotto has, has been clear that there won't be personnel changes. No, I, th- I think I think once you start um, throwing people out of the out of the balloon, you know, then then it frightens everyone else. So uh, see, so you, you know, nobody wants to be the next person. So you know, you have to uh, not do that. And I think Mattia has basically said that. Listen, we're fine. It will take care of it. We'll fix it. You know, we'll look into what we've um, we've done. But the pressure's on him really because he's the guy in charge. He's the front man now, and so he, you know, he can only say so many times we've taken steps to you know have every faith in my in my strategy people and he can only say that so many times uh if it doesn't get fixed then as i said you know by the time you get to monza he could be feeling the heat a little bit well there's nowhere to hide is there they won't let you know and that's that's how it is that's sport you know that's the nature of our business is a lot of attention and we're we're some of the people who actually put attention on them you know both with uh you know the sky coverage and and our team and we we like to look at analyze the sport and here on this uh, podcast we we know we like to um, as the fans do they like to go okay well understand what's going wrong if something's not going right they want to know why and we we have to somehow get inside those teams and find out and of course they're very protective about the truth of, of what's going on in their organizations as well they might be because they don't want their their opponents um taking sucker from from their failings Shall we just dissect what's gone on over the last couple of weeks in terms of we were supposed to all have a bit of a break. I don't think it's ever been so busy in the summer holidays in terms of what on earth is going on with the driver market. Well, you guys were on holiday when Alonso made his move to Aston Martin, right? What did you make of it? Is it the right thing for him? Is it the right thing for Aston Martin? I was very surprised that he'd gone to Aston Martin. I mean, you know, obviously when Seb went, it was an opening, but it's a kind of you know, the kind of guy that Fernando Alonso is and the kind of guy that Lawrence Stroll is and the ambitions they have for the team. I, I just I just can't see. I mean, why would you want to end your, let's be, let's be honest, you know, Fernando is going to have to retire eventually. So it's possibly the, the last team he'll be with. You don't want to be with a team that is struggling and having frustrations. And so some, either he's been convinced that there's some massive turnaround that's going to take place. It can't be the money. I just don't believe that he'd just do it just for the money. I can't. I mean, I think they're at the bottom of the trough. It can't be much worse than it is now, can it? Yeah, but we said that about Williams a few years ago, didn't we? We looked at Williams went, ah, oh, they've, they've bounced. Ah, but they've, the dif- there's difference here. There's a difference here in that Aston Martin have lots of money they've made some really good signings on the aerodynamic side uh, over the last 12 months mm. they've got a new factory I mean, i'm sounding like this is probably what lawrence yeah, Stroll said to fernando you're selling it to me <laughs> we've got a new factory coming yeah. on oh you want a two-year contract straight to we can do mm. that oh do you want to be an ambassador for the rest of your life as well yeah we can probably do that as well you know <laughs> so I, I actually can i can understand why he's done it i think they are going to get better because they can't actually get any worse they're currently ninth in the world okay they can get one place worse but you know what i mean it's going to get better and i think fernando alonso loves the thought of being the man that turns it around for them i think that appeals to the the ego doesn't it of anyone you want to be the main man and i and i think that the combination of his ambition with lawrence stroll's ambition could be Unbelievably, unbelievably effective. Let's assess what Fernando Alonso's contribution has been to Alpine in his time there. I think that he has, a team like Alpine want to be a serious player and they had a serious player in in Fernando. Yes, you can have Esteban Alcons and um, and other drivers, but Fernando has this charisma about him and this reputation. He's totally no-nonsense. He's totally business-like. He goes in there and he 
picks up the team on what they need to focus on. And he's, he's directing things, it seems to me, even from the cockpit. So I think he's, he's been a real asset to Alpine, but they've, they've been caught out. They suddenly, they, this totally surprised them that he was going to jump and go to somewhere else. Well, Joe, I remember, Damon, at the French Grand Prix, uh, Laurent Rossi, who is the, the boss of Alpine, road cars and racing activities, was asked a question about Fernando's future. And he talked about Fernando being part of their Le Mans programme, because Alpine have a, a Le Mans programme. And I remember thinking, I wonder if that is actually a selling point for Fernando. You know, he is so focused on Formula One, offering him a one year deal with the potential to go and do Le Mans with Alpine. I'm not I, I remember thinking, I'm not sure that's going to wash. And Alonso obviously just held off, held off, held off. And then as soon as midnight on July the 31st came and went, off he went. He's already won Le Mans, hasn't he? He just needs Indianapolis. And then he equals my dad's triple crown record you know and he, and he, if they if, if Alpine had offered him a, uh, offered him a guaranteed winning car for the Indianapolis 500 maybe he would have stuck around do you agree that Aston Martin will be more of a force in 2023 I think the bigger question in all of this chaps is why don't people want to drive for Alpine why did Daniel leave in its last iteration of Renault why did Fernando leave why did Piastri jump and say no I'm not driving for this team they're above McLaren in the table. It's a fast car. Why don't more drivers want to go there? Why don't Piastri jump and grab that opportunity with both hands? Pinks, do you remember in Monaco, you and I were discussing on this show um, after the race uh, about who will drive for McLaren. And we discussed the prospects of, of Piastri going there. And at the time, I felt it made sense for both because Piastri um, was frustrated that he wasn't racing this year. Daniel was having his problems and he is undoubtedly a great talent. Um, so I, under, I actually understand why Piastri's gone, because at the time when he started his negotiations with McLaren, I think he thought perhaps that it was going to be Alonso and Ocon uh, staying at Alpine. Or maybe he just thought McLaren's a better proposition in terms of a racing car. But I don't know why that is, because... The McLaren is clearly a handful. You know, you're talking about an eight-time race winner in Daniel Ricciardo struggling to get to grips with this car. There is no guarantee for Piastri that he is going to be able to drive as well as or better than Lando Norris in that car. Well, that's a whole nother question, isn't it? And why Piastri? Undoubtedly, he's good. He's an F3 champion. He's an F, uh, last year's F2 champion, won six races in F2 last year. But for a man who has never even driven in an official F1 session, there's a lot of scrapping over him. He's clearly good. I'm just thinking about the nuances of this McLaren. And you would have thought that perhaps he knew the workings of Alpine better. Maybe he didn't like what he saw. I don't know. Look, we're speculating. It is all conjecture. And I think more will become clear. But it is quite incredible with Fernando's cheeky little move there, the domino effect that it has had on the sport. And we, and we go into the second half of the season not much clearer. You say also, Pinks, why does no one want to drive for Alpine? But surely it's a, a, a really uh, good home for Daniel Ricciardo. I know he left after two years there, but actually year two was really strong. Yeah. There were podium finishes. Yeah. I felt he was really happy there and I was surprised that he jumped to McLaren when he did. Yeah, that's true as well. And there's been a personnel change. Obviously, Cyril Abitaful has left. The The dynamic within the team is slightly different. I mean, I, I really think that Alpine has a lot to offer. Do we think Daniel wants to carry on? Is he another driver who's starting to, you know, look look further afield and the rest of his life? And, and you know, if you look at Sebastian's uh, announcement on his Instagram page, he's made two posts on Instagram, uh, uh, apparently, and he's got 2.2 million followers. But anyway, uh, he's... he's and they're basically just that they're just his retirement announcement uh, in German and in English. So, uh, but you know, he's 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 talked about the fact that there's more to life, and I, I get this feeling with Daniel that you know he's he's kind of excited about life after F1 a little bit. I think there's a significant difference there. Seb has three kids. Uh, he's married with three children. His priorities have shifted. I felt personally when I heard Daniel overtake the two Alpines at the last race. And you, you, you just felt the punchiness in his voice. He's still got the hunger. Daniel Ricciardo picks off both of them during the course of a couple of corners. 
He still really wants it. This has been a very interesting, from my point of view as a driver, I look at the performances of drivers going up and down now, depending on which teams they go to. And some drivers can't drag a performance out of a car. And I'm, t- I'm asking myself, what is it about these regulations and the cars that they have now that's, that's so restrictive for some drivers? If you cast your mind back to the start of the season when Sergio was doing quite, ha- quite well, he was very happy with his car and he was winning races and Max wasn't so happy. Now Max is happier with his car. He's changed the, the, the basic setup and it switched it around a little bit with them. But you know, you get someone like Daniel, who's got loads of experience, goes to a team at McLaren just cannot get the damn thing to work. Now, what what is that? And I, I, I'm mystified because I, I always thought they, you know, I have had experiences like that where I've uh, they changed the regs and they went to groove tires and I just couldn't drive. I didn't. I, the, the the, you know, the chewing gum lost its flavour. I just could not enjoy driving these cars with these groove tires on. But I was also at the, near the point of retiring, so I kind of had two factors dragging me backwards a little bit. But you know, when you're when you're still a force to be reckoned with, uh, as Daniel is, I think, you know, he's still got a lot to offer. Why is it that they can't make the car suit him? No, the more I've listened to engineers talking and, and people talking, I was listening to a very interesting conversation um, about the difference between drivers that race in the States and the way they drive in the States. And they, you know, they come to the, to F1 and, and they're, the problem is there's so much learning to do with an F1 car. And I've, drivers take, almost a year to learn all the knobs and the buttons that they have on, on F1 cars from team to team because they have so many different layers of complexity that, you know, now it is bec- it's become not so easy to just jump in a car and be quick. And it, and it takes maybe more than two seasons. Well, Daniel's been there for two seasons. It took it took Fernando about two seasons in uh, Alpine, or at least, at least a season. But Damon, isn't that the point that Fernando yeah. struggled in year one at Alpine? Yeah. And in year two, he's now a force to be reckoned with. That hasn't happened for Daniel at McLaren. So maybe, you know, is the engineering team at Alpine a change for Daniel to to some fresh ideas could really benefit him? But it's an aspect of our sport and and the challenge that drivers, what they're actually, their job is as a driver these days. It's much more about being, you know, being working with engineers and also working with changes to the car that are, much more subtle and technical and to do with the steering wheel than it is uh, the knobs and buttons on the steering wheel than it is with, to do with the pedals and, and the brakes and the, the accelerator you know so um that's where i'm 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 struggling to get to into the mindset or the experience of being a, a formula one driver these days and, and also the simulator as well you know how much they use the simulator or how much whether they're making the simulator the car like the simulator or whether they're making you know the simulator like the car and and uh, the, the, you know we're entering a very strange dimension i feel with uh, with the job of a driver these days i mean it's fundamentally they've got to be quick they've got to be competitive they've got to be want, wanting to win which i don't think you know i think daniel and fernando both have those qualities and they're they're both can win but well, anyway, we've 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 put, we've pulled we've we've done a lot of speculation here uh, on on the reasons why Danny Ricardo's not quick and why Fernando's left Alpine. You know who is going to drive for Alpine? That's that's there's a space going. Well, I think it'll be Daniel Ricardo, and I, I think as as disappointed as we all are that it's it's going to end like this for Daniel Ricardo at McLaren. I think Piastri and Norris is a pretty exciting prospect, actually. Two young guns, Lando undoubtedly, in my mind, right up there with Leclerc and Russell and and Verstappen in terms of speed and Piastri. We don't know yet, but everything points to him being exciting. So that's a pretty that's a pretty exciting driver lineup at McLaren next year. And then you're talking about Lando being the experienced driver in the team and uh, Piastri being the new guy, which is how quickly it changes, doesn't it? Because you know he's. Uh, He's still very young, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. But uh, new to the sport, but you know, he's uh, he's got how many races now, um, Lando? He must have. I'm going for eighty. Yeah, something around there. But anyway, it, I mean, it is it, it's this frightening speed with which uh, drivers become experienced because they're starting so young these days, and and they get they get loads of seasons under their belts, and uh, before you know it, they've they're topping the the ton. So we talked about Alpine. We talked about McLaren. But also this has ramifications for Williams, because I think Williams for quite a long time have thought Piastri was going to be racing for them in 2023. And there was even talk of a, a Renault engine deal coming their way as part of 
the contract. So if Piastri is now going to McLaren, what do Williams do with their second seat? Because, of course, Alex Albon has re-signed uh, on a multi-year contract. So what happens to their second seat? Do they think they're going to have a much better car next year, in which case... Do they go for a, a young gun or do they keep with Nicholas Latifi who brings uh, some money with him and just until everything settles down at Williams, is that a good number two option? Jos Capito and his guys have got all that to think about. Exactly right. You know, the, the, the sport as well isn't a good place as well. Perhaps it's um, not appropriate to talk about it, but they've uh, just renounced, announced their results and they're, uh, and it's looking quite profitable and, uh, and the teams are getting more money. So uh, they, they, they don't necessarily, that might have an effect on driver market because it might mean that the teams don't necessarily need top-up budgets from drivers. So uh, that would be an ideal situation is if you have, you know, they'll pick the talent rather than uh, over the, the budget that the driver brings. 72. I'm not talking about Damon's age in September. I am talking about how many F1 races Lando Norris has taken part in. Thank you, Natalie. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm, I'm getting there. That's for sure. It will be. <laughs> By the way, Damon is so lovely, TC. He's actually putting on a whole golf day for my birthday. Yes, yeah, it should be called the um, Natalie Pinkham's birthday golf day, but it's not. It's called the Damon Hill Golf Challenge. So, uh, but you're, are you are you playing? Are you coming? Are you actually going to turn up? You're, you are coming. 100% oh, in. Okay. I'm in. I'm in. Are you two going to play together? Are you going to be a pairing? No, we're not. Don't you remember him saying he doesn't like to spend time with his Sky One colleagues? Sky <laughs> One colleagues. <laughs> I put them in another team. I don't stay away from them as much as possible because, uh, anyway. But no, I'm teasing. Um, but uh, no, it's just it's a charity fundraising thing for a charity that I support called Halo, which is um, Learning Disabilities Charity. So it's on the 20th of September. I'm telling you that so that you all support Damon and that you send me birthday cards. And I don't forget it's your birthday. Just when we thought you couldn't pack any more into the summer break something that happened right at the end of it. Kimi Raikkonen went back racing this time in NASCAR. And um, great to see, wasn't it? He was really quick, Pinks. He was at Watkins Glen and uh, he qualified, I think, 27th, faster than Danny Kvyat, who's also uh, riding in NASCAR at the minute. And by all accounts, he loved it. I don't know if you've seen any YouTube footage, but in every single interview, the Iceman is melting. He's just laughing and clearly having a great time. And then he was taken out of the race by, it sort of got involved in someone else's accident, unfortunately. But I think he was quite quick. So I think we might see him do that, do more of that. Well, it's, you just some people, you're never going to get out of a, a racing car or some sort of speedy, you know, missile projectile type thing, are you? I mean, he'll be doing, he'll be doing everything because he's, he's always done it. And he's, that's, that's what he loves doing. He loves going fast. That takes us back to the earlier point of when these guys make the decision to retire really does define the rest of their lives because, you know, they've still got the appetite. It, it never leaves you, does it? So, so picking the right point to retire is crucial on a personal level, in terms of your own ambition, in terms of your, your family, in terms of your fans. It's a very difficult decision to make. I think it all, it all does depend on your personal circumstances and your makeup. I mean, you could not get two more different characters than uh, Kimi Raikkonen and Sebastian Vettel. So, I mean, you think about what Sebastian Vettel's talking about wanting to do uh, in retirement versus, you know, Kimi does not say much, He but he loves his racing. He loves his fast cars. I was listening to Beat Zonda's, um, your interview, Tom, with him on, on uh, Beyond the Grid. Absolutely fascinating. And, and they clearly had a very soft spot for, for Kimi and regarded him as just one of the most... Uh, amazing talents that we've ever had in in the sport but he was very you know famously didn't really say much you know so we kind of uh you know it, maybe he missed opportunities and um uh but he's out there now carrying on and uh and hopefully getting his getting his thrills driving something else i wish f1 drivers were allowed to drive more varied cars because i think they'd learn a lot about our support if they could just go and drive something else uh, every now and then i think that they get stuck in a rut honestly in f1 um because of the the nature of the of the formula but you know drivers getting more experience as they used to do in the in the 60s and the 70s they they would drive everything um you know they became more rounded drivers and more useful to teams as well because they could uh, bring back feedback from various different experiences Oh, Damon, what a segue back into Alonso and Daniel Ricciardo. Do you think one of the reasons Alonso has overcome the troubles of last year is because of all the experience he has 
racing other stuff, IndyCar, Le Mans. Absolutely. It's got to help, hasn't it? Doing something. I mean, on a really banal level, I went on holiday and I had a hire car for a week. I drove that hire car. I came back, I drove my own car and I suddenly felt my own car was completely different to what I remembered it. You know, there were both, and I'd never have known that if I had not tried a different car. So, you know, you learn from trying all sorts of different wild, you know, sometimes we used to do wild setups on our car just to see what happened, you know, just to see how it, how different this thing could feel. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's interesting him getting, I'm sure he'll be really fascinated to be driving that car and, and be very interested to see how Kimmy's going to get on with his career, racing career after retiring. I didn't know he was going to carry on racing, but apparently he is. Questions, please. Damon Hill, do you think it's time maybe you should change your approach to racing? <laughs> Well, I don't know even how to start answering that question, but anyway. It's the Williams leading, Damon Hill. Some more questions, please. Damon, were you happy with the start? Damon Hill, congratulations for this winning, Damon. You must be satisfied. Any questions? Yeah. Well, Damon, it must have been absolutely gutting that last couple of laps. Damon, it looked like he had it really under control. Some more questions, please. Damon Hill has done a fantastic job. Okay, well, now for my favourite bit of the show, as ever, it is Ask Damon. What have the fans got for you this week, Mr Hill? I tremble in anticipation. Hi, Damon. I'm Chun from London. I love the podcast. All three of you have a hilarious sense of humour, so keep doing what you're doing. I'm sure we can agree that Silly Season has been um, quite the roller coaster already with the Piastri and Alpine drama. And uh, as I was being reminded that um, Oscar Piastri is managed by Mark Webber. It got me thinking, and I'm quite fascinated by what that relationship is like. So my question is, Damon, if you could manage any driver, past or present, who would you choose and why? Thanks. Sean, that's a really interesting question. I just want to turn it around slightly and say, what driver would want to have me as a manager? That might be a, a more important part of this equation because uh, you know managing a driver is 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 part of psychology, I think, as much as anything else. But you definitely need the a business now, so you need someone who understands how to do deals and 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 you know do the contract side of things. As we've seen with the, the Piastri, there's something going on there which um, is a little bit confusing. But um, yeah, I want the easiest, the fastest driver, and the easiest driver to manage uh, of all time. So it'd probably be. Um, you know, one of these drivers you just put in and then they do the rest. That would be nice. I just don't think those two often go hand in hand. They don't. Fastest, they're often precocious <laughs> and maybe a bit of ego to manage. Ego and, and the politics and also their, their, you know, their demands in terms of, you know, lifestyle and, and things they want to say publicly. You know, there's I will say this um, in, in that I was given some very good advice by someone when I got myself into a bit of, a bit of a pickle and I'd wish I'd had um, some more advice like this earlier in my career but saying the wrong thing and getting into trouble with the press you know I got I got some advice from a, a person who aided politicians and um, she uh, just basically advised me to save it for the book was her comment in other words don't court uh, controversy just for the sake of it so things like that advising drivers on how to handle the politics and the, the complexities of being in the public eye as well I think there's a need for that for some drivers especially young drivers coming up um, you know other drivers get a handle on it someone like Fernando Alonso is probably it's no it's no point I mean he understands all all of that stuff anyway so and he'll he speaks for himself as as does Lewis um, and uh, so yeah it's a very interesting challenge and there are there are a couple of people who are managers in in our sport who you never hear from like some someone like nicholas todd you know he absolutely keeps his mouth shut and does not get involved in the in the front being in the in the limelight at all but he's quietly working behind the scenes with uh with his stable of drivers um usually ferrari drivers or or alfa romeo drivers well i think the old adage never complain or explain can actually get you very far in life or as ronan keating would put it you say it best <laughs> And you say nothing at all. Yeah, but that's that's the problem, isn't it? Is you're then then you're accused of being boring, you know. But you you can't please everyone. Worked okay for Kimmy. Kimmy had his special charm, didn't he? Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. That's the only thing I can remember him saying, really. That and give me my gloves. Damon, can I say something controversial? I think with a different manager, 
you would have stayed at Williams in 1997. You should have said so at the time, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I think we missed the boat there. I think we missed that opportunity. Yeah, so that's that, Chun, that's a really good point. I didn't perhaps manage myself very well. So uh, I probably am not the best person to manage someone else either. But, you know, I've learned a lot in that time between being a, a Formula One driver and listening to t- a very interesting point. I love listening to your beyond the grids tom is listening to drivers and quite often they say exactly this they wish they'd had a better manager points in their career where they they took the wrong decision or they they believe someone who was telling them something and they just missed out on opportunities and there's a whole bunch of really great drivers who who we never saw the best of because well yeah. guys if if the three of us had been managing jean alacy i think his career could have gone very differently he actually signed for Williams in 1991 or for 1991. Yeah, he could have he could have stopped me from getting into Formula One. And he then elected to go to Ferrari instead. Now, I think the three of us would have said, Jean, you need Williams. And I think he'd be a multiple race winner, not just uh, that one win in Canada in 1995, if we'd been in charge. Yeah, it's a whole load of a whole load of uh, what ifs in this in this. Uh subject matter isn't there you know drivers going and taking decisions as we've been discussing all of this podcast about the the driver movements uh, during the summer break you know uh, and now we're pondering and there's it's very difficult from the inside to see what the right thing to do is and that's why you know, it, you know I did used to read what the journalists were saying because you get an outside perspective on your situation. Sometimes it's quite painful to read that stuff, but, uh, you know, you have to be able to get some perspective. Um, You know, you're the the insect, if you like, inside the jar. And I think what is being said and written about drivers does influence teams as well. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, you know, what shocked me actually quite a lot as a driver was they would sign people who I didn't think was a particularly good driver. And I'd, I'd go, why would they sign that? And they, and it's because they, the driver's been hyped by the press. The press the press fall in love with this particular person because they got sideways coming out of a corner, you know, and, and didn't spin off or something, you know, and they, and you, you do have, it does happen, you know, but so the media is a useful tool uh, in hyping drivers. I mean, if you think about, you know, why Kimi, went he's completely skipped the junior formulas and went straight from f2 straight into f1 now formula renault formula renault straight into f1 big point you're right it was formula renault um so he completely missed out the 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 ladder up to the up to f1 but because he had some mystique about him but then that was well-placed mystique as we as we found out who would i manage was the question somewhere out there there's a there's a driver who's going to win 10 world championships and cause no trouble along the way and that's the guy i'm going to manage Okay, our second question comes from Jordan. A beautiful day to you all. And now that the silly season is also in full swing, it made me wonder, how do teams deal with drivers that are on the way out? When you left for Arrows after your uh, championship winning season, did they allow you to drive the FW19 for testing purposes or uh, the new Renault engine for 97? Or, or was it all withheld from you because you were uh, about to leave for the competition? All the best from Jordan. Jordan, yeah, you basically hit the nail on the head. Once you've announced that you will no longer be with the team, you are not uh, privy to their plans for the future. Um, so that might deprive you of testing opportunities in my day when we went testing. They now have simulators and stuff. But yeah, you are not going to be um, given quite the same access. And what can you do? You can't sit there in the debrief room and go, I need to find out more about what the other driver is doing because they're now focusing on the future. So... Uh, it does the doors do slam shut slightly and uh, it can make the the remaining races slightly awkward i think you're right i think it was perhaps more of a thing when you did lots of testing back in the day in fact it would have probably been uh you probably been a good thing because uh, it meant no damon we don't want you to test in barcelona next week stay home you're on holiday yeah <laughs> <laughs> as you as you slowly sink into the sunset whereas so much of what the drivers do now is is race based that and, and at the races they're not really testing that much i think of bottas last year um he was asked a couple of times you know now you're now it's been announced that you're going to alfa romeo how different is it within the team and he said well not really because it's all about getting the maximum result for the team on each given weekend. And he's part of all of those discussions. I should add that actually, I, I although I, my 
retirement from Williams was announced before the end of the season, they did. They can continue to put in, uh, you know, every effort to help me win races because clearly it was in their interest as well. So it wasn't. It wasn't like they backed out. Jordan, thanks for that question. That got us thinking. And if you have more questions, then please send them to askdamon at f1.com and uh, send it as an audio file. And we will play you asking your question on the show. So come on then, who's organised? Who has packed for Spa? Well, I'm not going, Natalie, but if I was going, I'd take a wetsuit. <laughs> oh, that would be good, wouldn't it? I'm only asking the question because I want to boast that I already have. I packed a week ago. I've been down at the seaside for my best mate's wedding and I had to pack before I went. God knows what I've put in my suitcase. Do you just need an anorak, don't you, basically? Yeah, you do. You need layers. It's hard. I hope you take the right suitcase with you to Spa, Pinks. Otherwise, you're going to be sat presenting Sky's coverage in your swimsuit. With with, with my fascinator, uh, <laughs> my headband from the wedding. <laughs> uh, I tell you what, I am excited about it. It's uh, such a purist track. It's iconic. It's everything you grew up loving about Formula One. And it's a, a real privilege to be going back there. But who's going to win the race? I'm going to go, or just to buy you a bit more time to think about it, George Russell. I think it's going to be Lewis. I think if it's going to be an, anyone other than the obvious, you know, Max Verstappen victory, then I think I'm going to plump for Lewis because I I feel it in my bones that he's going to win a race this year. I just think there yeah. could be situations at Spa that could fall into his into his uh, into his lap a little bit. It does. It does feel like a, a wins around the corner for him, doesn't it? Yeah, and he's won there four times and. Teams make a big thing of momentum going into the summer break, don't they? Well, Mercedes had that because they would have had a front row lockout in Hungary had Hamilton not had that DRS problem in qualifying. So they had the momentum with the slight rule change, which should peg back Ferrari and Red Bull. Um, oh, Mercedes. Yeah, let's go for Mercedes. I'm not going to say which one. You can't have two. It's just, that's not fair. Well, I'm going to go for Max Verstappen then if I've got to go for one of the obvious ones. But we all want it to be Charles, actually, for the sake of the World Championship, spicing it up, keeping it going for as long as possible. We do. We want to, we want to have a cliffhanger again, but I have to say it's going to be some great races going to happen. You know, whatever happens, it's going to be some fantastic races. We've seen some brilliant races this season already. So there's still plenty to play for. So that's it, guys. We're back. Thanks very much for listening to the F1 Nation podcast, which is produced by Formula One in association with Audio Boon Studios. Natalie's off to spa, Tom's off to spa, and reporting back next Monday. Great, guys. Fantastic to have the band back together. See you next week. Yeah, see you. Let's hope it's a good race. Bye.